0: This is a recording from the University of Leicester. Unlike the title, uh, we are going to talk a little bit about sexually exploited girls and young women, but we're going to do that in passing. The focus of this piece of, or this, this lecture, is actually the practitioners' and police's stories that we're told, because there's something a little bit troubling about those stories. And when I say troubling, I mean academically troubling. There's something curious that sits at the heart Of the tales that were told to me. And it's that that I want to focus on. But in order to get all of us focused, if you like, I'm going to start with a story. Um, The story is Cheryl's story. And please forgive me, I'm moving between a notebook and some paper and this OHP. So I may fumble around a little bit from time to time. Okay. Uh, The story is of Cheryl and her two friends, Katie and Fifi. Uh, I'm not very good at making up names. um, (laughs) Katie and Fifi, who were well known within one sexual exploitation service. One practitioner recounted this group of girls, their activities, and the efforts that were made to support them. Cheryl and her two friends were part of a wider group of teenagers from an inner city council estate within the UK. They were all aged between 15 and 17 and spent much of their time at one of the three local parks. Both local police and practitioners knew of these sites as hot spots for sexual exploitation. Cheryl and her, her two friends had been spotted at one of the local parks, drinking late at night with older males. Cheryl was a regular missing from, per, missing from home person, and the police had returned her to her local authority care more than two dozen times. Cheryl had, was identified and referred to a sexual exploitation service, after the police established a link between her group of friends and a potential perpetrator of sexual exploitation. Cheryl was placed on a 12-month intensive support program. The practitioner described Cheryl as displaying the risk factors common to children vulnerable to sexual exploitation. She had a disrupted family life with over 40 local authority care moves Um, by the time she was 15, and she was known to police for minor offending behavior. After initially being difficult to engage with, Cheryl disclosed that she was in a relationship with an older boyfriend. This male had bought her a new mobile phone, alcohol, cigarettes, and even some new clothes over an 18-month period. The male was identified as the potential perpetrator of sexual exploitation. The practitioner recounted that Cheryl and her two friends had had sex with six men, including Cheryl's boyfriend, over a 12- to 18-month period. Much of it took place during parties where alcohol and substance misuse was commonplace. Nevertheless, the sharing of these six men, particularly Cheryl's boyfriend, was a cause of much aggression between Cheryl and her two friends. Hostility that eventually turned to violence when Cheryl assaulted one of her friends and was subsequently arrested and charged. Cheryl now has a criminal record and at the time of the interviews was due in court. Now, I start with that story really to to kind of ground some of this research away from the sort of media headlines that you get into something a little more commonplace, if you like. That story is interesting to me, not so much because of what it said about Cheryl, but because the practitioner who recounted it, along with most of the others I spoke to, authored an unusually paradoxical account of their work. Forgive all the words on the slides. I thought it was better to do that. I also assume that you can read and listen at the same time, which is terrible teaching practice. Terrible, but there we go. So uh, this is just to outline these paradoxical tales. When I use the word practitioner, I'm also talking about police here. Um, and uh, as I'll say in a little bit, the interviews that form the basis of this lecture uh, came from three different localities in the country. And they were with people who worked within specialist sexual exploitation services and specialist police officers. So these were people who had skills and expertise in dealing with sexual exploitation. All right. So the stories that they told me about what they did and how they intervened were marked by this paradox. They said that according to the criteria by which their practice and organizations are measured, what they do is successful. Um, and you can see some of the ways in which they recounted the success of their practice. Yet they also said that what they do does little to address the risk and needs of young women, that much of what they do uh, has little real effect, and that some of what they do actively contributes to the young women's marginalization and criminalization. This is indeed a paradox. It is a mutually exclusive set of thoughts or contradictions. So the argument that I want to put forward, and I thought I'd give you the argument first in case I run out of time. Um, This is the argument I am working towards. Um, And it actually, hopefully if I can get it finished, will be submitted to a journal um, and will eventually be published. Um, The rest of the paper, I want to unpack this paradox and explore the difficulties and dilemmas faced by practitioners as they talked about balancing their practice between the grim-lived realities of the girls' and young women's lives that they worked with and a set of organizational imperatives that often undermined the two objectives of our policies on sexual exploitation, those two objectives being to safeguard the girls' and young women and also to provide a modicum of justice by prosecuting the perpetrators. So safeguarding and justice. And what I want to suggest to you is that specialist sexual exploitation service practitioners, gosh, that's a long turn of phrase, um, and specialist police operate within an anomic context. And those of you who remember Durkheim and Merton, an anomic context marked by fundamental contradictions between discourses of child sexual exploitation and abuse and discourses of risk-need vulnerability. That's all one word, um, as we'll see. And between the objectives of government guidance and the law on child sexual exploitation, and also between organization-specific imperatives and practices of risk management, um, and also their own expertise and experience of dealing with them. If you separate all of these out, you begin to see that they pull in fundamentally different directions. So to try and capture that sense of anomie, these contradictions, I'm playing with the term impossible policing, where policing here refers to its broader sense, that of securing a particular type of social order rather than policing via police, if you follow what I mean. Okay, that's the argument part one. Um, Argument part two. This state of impossible policing has produced an institutionally-induced state of knowing. How do practitioners exist within an anomic state right, or an anomic set of conditions? Um, I want to argue that their um, consciousness, if you like, becomes reshaped. Um, so, an institutionally-induced state of knowing that accompanies practitioners and polices ritualized responses to the contradictions that mark their professional lives. So practitioners both know and don't know a series of things. They know that, measured against specific institutional metrics, what they do is effective. This is restating the paradox. That much of what they do does little to safeguard girls and young women experiencing child sexual exploitation and often leads to greater criminalization due to the interplay of these various things argument part two continued. Some of what they do makes the girls and young women more vulnerable to criminalization due to the intensive surveillance and policing, uh, more classic use of that word, of their sexual and leisure lives and attempts to secure justice for girls and young women who are sexually exploited often results in injustice due to the clash of different organizational imperatives, particularly between the police, CPS, and courts. To capture that institutionally induced state of contradictory knowledge, I want to borrow heavily from Pat Carlin's concept of imaginary penalties and uh, shape another concept, imaginary safeguarding. Where practitioners and police know know the above, yet they act as if these contradictions do not exist and as if adherence to organizational goals and practices of managing risk and vulnerability they will achieve the ultimate objectives of policy. And let me say right here, this is not a way of having a pop at practitioners and police. Not at all. Because this state of knowing, this as if, this imaginary safeguarding, if you like, is structured by much broader forces. Okay. So let's talk through a little bit um, about how to make that argument. As I said, I'm drawing on these qualitative interviews from three different sites. Um, I'm happy to take questions about the methodology later. Uh, The device that I'm going to use to talk through those arguments is a set of dilemmas or difficulties that the practitioners and the police told me about. And the very first set of dilemma or the first difficulty, the challenge, is between the actuarialist drive of policy and guidance and their knowledge, practitioners and police's knowledge about the lives of the girls and young women they work with. And the first one, just to set the scene, is to give you a flavor of the actuarial logics that they work within. So, the first thing that happens if somebody is identified as being at risk of sexual exploitation is that an assessment is done and an intervention is crafted around that assessment. Those of you who are aware of actuarial justice This will look very familiar, but it's actuarial safeguarding. So the risk of sexual exploitation is an algorithm, if you like, which is a cumulative calculation of a girl's vulnerabilities along with her risky behavior. And interventions are determined by assessments of riskiness as low, mid, or high. Different local authorities use different assessments. Sometimes they have a four-point scale, sometimes a three, sometimes a five. Um, but it's a graded scale of risk, if you like. Vulnerabilities tend to be those things that um, are uh, thought of as the why an individual girl might be vulnerable to the pecuniary or exploitative actions of others. So there are things like low self-esteem, emotional neglect, etc., etc. Uh, balanced against that are a set of risks, and I'm just focusing on the significant risks here, partly for a matter of time. Uh, The total list of significant risks is actually quite large if you look across all of the protocols that have been developed in the country. But these are some of the common themes. Having older boyfriends, having unexplained amounts of money, frequenting areas known for sexual exploitation, going missing, having lots of mobile phones, not just one, um, unusual Internet activity, and so on. Some tools specify that the significant risks are things like being sexually exploited, Literally, um, Darby tool. I had to put that in there simply because I thought it was really interesting that a significant risk factor for sexual exploitation was being sexually exploited or indeed being trafficked. Um, that's, uh, anyway, there we go. So once an individual is assessed as being at significant risk of sexual exploitation, it triggers safeguarding work. And safeguarding work will take different forms in different parts of the country, but at heart... It's about the production of some type of child protection plan and it's about the drawing together of a multiple range of agencies to produce the work or the intervention that deals with sexual exploitation and there is usually some element of social services involvement even if it's only in terms of information sharing. In practice, when you speak to the um, providers of services rather than the police, what this means is creating a safety strategy that focuses on the behavior of girls and young women. And this safety strategy offers emotional and psychological support as well as relationship advice. Right. This is where it starts to get quite interesting. Uh, Yet, when you talk to the practitioners, so that's, that's the actuarial framework in which they work, when you talk to them about what does this safety strategy mean, how do you determine the risks, how do you assess them, these are the stories that are then told, and we begin to see the deep dilemmas and contradictions facing practitioners. Risk needs vulnerabilities all get tied up together and translated into, this is grooming, this is sexual exploitation. Uh, Here's a, a nice couple of quotes that illustrates that. It's the usual risk factors, um, accommodation, drugs, alcohol, clothing. It can be money, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just wanting affection and love, and then all the other things tied up in that. It's all part and parcel of the grooming process. Uh, ignore the prac after that. That should have been deleted. Um, another practitioner said, The biggest thing for me is the looked-after child. You can remove the child because they are not safe, but you cannot make them safe from this, from their histories. So it becomes very difficult for them to begin to disentangle one thing or another. And then when you push further in the interviews, you begin to uncover this deep ambivalence around superficial risk factors, internet use, mobile phones, and deep risks, deep vulnerabilities, as well as these tensions between what exploitation is as opposed to what exchange is, and how all of that's then applied to an individual's life. So, some of this could just be normal teenage behavior. You want to give teenagers freedom and opportunity to take risk because that's part of being a teenager, isn't it? So it's very hard to put this in a child protection arena and make it fit. Or, as another, I think this was a police officer who said this, she accepts she's a victim, but in reality I think we, we are both aware of how the circumstances develop where that becomes learnt behavior. Where a child finds themselves in situations where, actually, I earned £100 and that's not bad. All right, he's a bit older, you know. Hey, I've missed out a no in there. And of course, one of the other things that the practitioners talked about when trying to implement, if you like, this actuarial form of assessment, and um, indeed the interventions that come afterwards is how they deal with the sheer diversity of experiences they encounter, particularly when the policies that they're working to and the guidance they're working to flatten that diversity and call it child sexual exploitation. So, and this is, I think this is a statement that wraps it all up nicely. So you've got the raping, right? That's not sexual exploitation, that's rape. Um, So you've got the raping, and then you've got some which are, they'll go to parties, and they'll be given alcohol and drugs and having sex, and there's a lot of that. There might be that boyfriend element, but I think that simplifies it a lot because from what I'm picking up, they're being targeted, groomed, met in places, and then there's a lot of alcohol, and then rape is happening. So it all becomes just this mess of diversity flattened out. All right, so that gives you a little sense of the tensions just around actuarial justice and then try, not justice, sorry, actuarial safeguarding, and then trying to uh, assess. Uh, What do these safety strategies then look like in practice? Uh, Well, I went in, right, this is a long quote. I'll just leave you to read it, actually, then read it out if you don't mind. Um. Everyone there? It's interesting, if you think about well, actually, uh, I'll flash up the next one, and then I'll go into why these are interesting statements. Okay. So we have conversations about consent and not consent, worksheet scenarios, DVDs, relationship advice. The aim is to get them to think about the relationship uh, and how we can make it as safe that should be as possible, not sage as possible. right? It's about trying to get them to empower themselves, to see what is negative in the relationship, uh, what they are unhappy with, but not it being my opinion, but their opinion, because we've got time, we can actually build that relationship and empower them. So we have safety strategies that are actually not dealing with those assessments of risk or the interventions at all because what we're beginning to see in these safety strategies is what might be called relationship advice. There was another tale that these were largely service providers that practitioners also told and they talked about their service as being the service of last resort. We are the service that is here when young people won't engage with anything else. Education, they're not engaging with it. CAMS, they're not attending it. Social workers and drug and alcohol support, they're not working with them. Uh, that's often when we get involved, which is such a shame because it's the high-end stuff by then. You need to be more preventive. We only get brought in when there's no one else. We spend a lot of time with engagement. We'll spend weeks. We've got one per- I've got one person now, and the first five t- Do you mind if I swear? Everyone okay with that? Okay, great. Um, I've got one person now, and the first five times she told me to fuck off But I kept going, being persistent and just hanging around there, you know, building the relationship that way. One of the interesting things about this, this was a narrative that came up a lot in all of the um, practitioners' tales. And the thing that caught my attention about this is that in a sense what these practitioners are telling us is that the risk assessment tools don't actually map on nor the interventions that are drafted off the back of them don't map on to what they're actually doing. The process that these practitioners are engaged in is a slow burn, a very slow burn process. And the safety plans and strategies and risk assessment tools cannot be easily implemented as the real work that they do is about persistent engagement with the young person. And yet there was also another set of stories that they talked about with regards to some of the more superficial, to use that superficial and deep contradiction again. Um, They talked about the troubles around labeling. There is an organizational imperative to label. The interventions only come off the back of somebody being categorized in a particular way. Categorization is an act of labeling, Uh, very simple. And what the practitioner said about the labelling is this. It wasn't a huge theme, but it was significant enough to note here. There's a real issue around labelling young people too. And it's all very easy to think that this person is a risk of sexual exploitation. Let's put a referral in. But, you know, what does that label mean? It just appears that anyone can be vulnerable these days when many of these girls don't need to be going to the sexual exploitation services. They need to be seeing someone else. Or, it's like being labeled with a disability. We need to be concerned how this label affects these girls, their image, and how sexual exploitation is projected onto them. We need to think about how these girls carry that information around, because this service is known throughout the locality, and these girls and their friends uh, will know what it means to be referred here. Obviously, my proofreading skills are sorely lacking. All right, there's part of the other stories that they said about these safety strategies that were produced, and there are reams of documents um, when a safety strategy is produced. The practitioners also talked about how the current climate was affecting what they could do, that persistent engagement that they were involved in. And quite frankly, I had virtually every practitioner say to me they had overstretched caseloads, There was very poor training provision, um, particularly in their locality. There was a lack of money. They had a lack of staff. Uh, Many of the sexual exploitation services are now needing to charge for the interventions for the young people, uh, and that they also had to earn money themselves. And one of the ways that they did that was by offering training to other agencies. By offering training to other agencies, they were reducing the amount of time they could spend in that deep, real, persistent engagement with individuals. And of course, this isn't a context that's just affecting them, it's affecting all of the people in the public sector. And that competition for resources with other agencies combined with what was seen as a low priority around child sexual exploitation. We have a nice quote that demonstrates this. The trouble with social services is the fact that they've got so much on their caseload that they, oh, crikey, I do apologize for all of these typos. They don't even, they don't go deep into any case. They deal with it superficially or in the periphery. Or they deal with, you know, things that are so evident. They don't have the time to deal with anything of of the emotional sort, you know, things that matter. They don't do that sort of nurturing. They don't have the time, energy, or resource resource to do that self-worth work. Now, one practitioner when thinking about this spoke of her nightmare scenario where she did not know whether or not to turn off her phone at night. This was because she was in fear that she might wake up to miss calls and find that the young person had been found harmed or worse. This was a nightmare, she explained, because she felt that she was the only point of contact for that particular young person out of hours or at night. There was no one else for this young girl to turn to during those times. She knew the potential dangers that face these girls at night and recognized the limited provision available for them out of hours. This left her frustrated at what could be done in this situation. All right, I'm going to shift the focus a little bit here. We've been looking at that The challenge between actuarial safeguarding and then the practices that go on underneath that and not just the practices, some of the concerns that they had about the context in which they were operating with the different sort of organizational imperatives that were um, at hand. I'm going to shift that to another dilemma that they faced. So if we focus not on the safeguarding work, those safety strategies, but actually on the monitoring, surveillance, and if you like, containment and intelligence work, this includes the police as well, we begin to see another real challenge. And that challenge is around uh, what I've termed policing the unpoliceable. Uh, Quite a bit of this is picked up in the Howard League report, Out of Place. Um, So some of this you'll be able to see in that. When we think about uh, what I'm calling policing the unpoliceable, what I'm trying to capture here is the contradictions that arise when practitioners and police officers attempt to regulate the movement and activity of these girls in an effort to safeguard them, either from themselves or perpetrators. These difficulties arise simply because many of these girls and young women do not want to be policed, plain and simple. Speaking to practitioners and police officers, it's clear that this makes their working lives very difficult, if not impossible. Both practitioners and police know that policing these girls' movements is imperative to their protection, yet they also know that many of the girls are unpoliceable at some basic level precisely because of their emotional and material needs, that being the girls' emotional and material needs, not the practitioners or the police. Uh, This uh, situation leads to the practitioners questioning the effectiveness of such policing measures uh, particularly when criminalizing devices such as ASBOs are used to manage these girls' activities. Yeah. Practitioners and police of- officers now monitor the movements of vulnerable girls in an effort to keep them safe. It's a very blanket statement. Different localities, different types of organizations use uh, these mechanisms in different ways. They often record and share information across other agencies in an effort to build up a picture of these girls and young women, their peers and their activities. In some cases, practitioners and police officers will intervene in the movements or activities of these girls in an effort to protect them from themselves. Now, for both sets of practitioners, the rationale for action can't be clearer. These, These girls and young women, according to them, are at serious risk of harm or death if safeguarding measures are not put in place which monitor and if necessary, intervene in the girls' activities and movements. As one officer stressed, it is my job to protect life and property. And I think here and now that the kids we're dealing with need help building themselves a future and preserving their own lives. They can't remember what day it is, the amount of alcohol they consume, how on earth they're not dead, I'll never know. It's a sense of urgency. A practitioner put it in a slightly different but no less urgent manner. When we first started, it was crises intervention. If you don't know where they're at, if you don't know their whereabouts, if you don't know, you don't know if they're safe. If you don't know any of these things, it doesn't matter if they are five minutes or ten hours late. If you don't know they are safe, report them missing. A real sense of urgency. Now, The practitioners were just as keen to respond to missing persons. Missing persons is often a trigger for all manner of activities, a missing persons report. And and practitioners were often keen to respond to these. In one case, a practitioner talked about how her and a number of others, when looking for one of the girls, knowing where she'd likely be, and in an effort to bring her back uh, home or bring her back to a safe place, Uh, That particular practitioner informed us that by offering this service, she hoped that the girls and young women would come to realize that they needed to take responsibility for their own behaviors and their own safety. However, both practitioners and police faced difficulties in policing the girls' activities in this manner. Police officers in particular recognized that the young women often didn't want to be policed in such an intrusive way, The police officer talked about how it became very difficult to manage these girls precisely because many of them were determined to go out, to meet friends, to go to parties. I'm pausing and slowing down there slightly because that doesn't sound like terribly aberrant or risky behavior except in certain circumstances. So often what you get are the same triggers of ordinary teenage behavior being policed and managed by official agencies in a way that Perhaps it doesn't happen for girls that haven't been identified as at risk of sexual exploitation. This left one police officer in particular expressing frustration at the difficult position he felt stuck in. What we're, dealing here with, what we're dealing with here are children who are absolutely convinced they don't need to be safeguarded. It's very difficult to manage. They want to go out, but you can't tie them down. You can't stop them. But at some point in the future, unless I've got this wrong, that child is going to wake up to the realization that something wrong has happened to them, that they've been out uh, and have been used for someone else's sexual gratification. I'm just pausing on that. It's an interesting one. And it's the dilemma that sits at the heart of a lot of this. Um, But I'll come back to that slightly later. So continuing on this theme, uh, on the one hand, police officers knew that these girls needed to be monitored in the name of protection, but they also accepted that the girls didn't want to be policed, and that they were going out to do what they wanted to do, regardless of the potential risks. One officer referred to this as fine-line policing, where the officer carefully warns the girls of the risks that they are putting themselves into. And only intervening in cases where it is considered absolutely necessary." I quote "The decision-making areas are clear in some cases. I went to see a girl who's disclosed that she is friends with an adult male in his 30s. She is 15. And she disclosed then that her friend had gone into his car and her as well. So I made the decision to go and see her family straight away because that was a risk that had to be managed that day." Yeah. All right. Uh, making no judgments as I go on. Uh, The same can be said of practitioners. It was clear from the interviews that practitioners wanted the police to closely monitor a local town center in one of the regions, uh, the local park, and the bus station in order to look for girls and young women and their older males who might be targeting them. However, practitioners also recognized that the girls and young women didn't want their movements monitoring and they often snuck out of the house or their care homes at night to meet their friends in these locations. The picture that was drawn for me then was of this cat-and-mouse game between the monitoring efforts of practitioners and police and the needs of these girls to exercise what is, in effect, adolescence, albeit adolescence in very risky contexts. This left practitioners and police in a difficult situation of recognizing that their monitoring efforts were, in effect, actively, sometimes, resisted. But it didn't stop them, Um, and it didn't stop them using the law to intervene in cases they deemed absolutely necessary. During the interviews, both practitioners and police recounted stories of curfews, ASBOs, and displacement procedures that were used to manage the girls' activities and, if necessary, remove them from dangerous situations or uh, places. As one practitioner narrated the police act on intelligence and then put a protection plan around a young person. This can be things like if the young person is missing after 11 o'clock, they get reported every night. Um, They're not allowed to contact, not allowed contact with certain people that are enforced to them. Uh, They're not allowed to go to certain places. Youth offending services might put a curfew in place depending on if there's a link with uh, drugs and alcohol or if the young person is repeatedly missing. And then we have another quote that demonstrates... The same. How am I doing for time? Ten minutes. Okay. Uh, We're going to start cutting to the chase then. Just come back to argument part one. All of that, just focusing on those two contradictions, those two dimensions, if you like, actuarial, safeguarding, um, in uh, a very difficult context, and then also policing the unpoliceable we can actually begin to trace through um, how organizational imperatives um, of audit, of risk assessment, of targeted interventions begin to act in tension with the practitioner's expertise and understanding of the issues and the lives of the girls and how discourses of choice, consent, coercion, victimhood, violence create, if you like, a symbolic landscape which does not easily map onto both the practitioners and police's sense-making of the girls' lives and young women's lives and also their sense-making of the actuarial processes that they're involved in. It also demonstrates that for all their work, they know that what they do do, does little to create safety. Whoops. Does little to create safety. In short, they have described an anomic working condition that ultimately results in the undermining of the safeguarding aim of the policies itself. Or, as I suggested, a state of impossible policing. Right, Uh, in the remaining time, I don't think I'm going to get through all of this um, imaginary safeguarding, but I'm going to try my hardest. Um, So the question that then arises is an interesting one. How is this knowing of so many mutually exclusive thoughts resolved. How is that accommodated at the level of the practitioner and police's consciousness? Uh, Well, we could um, go down Merton's line here, strain theory, anomie, the five different adaptations to strain. Uh, But quite unlike Merton's innovators, ritualists, or rebels, who, when recognizing the strain placed upon them between the goals and the means, give up Uh, on one or the other, the goals or the means, or give up on both, these police and practitioners existed within an institutionally induced state of of knowing, where their consciousness was reshaped such that they could act and be aware as if there were no real contradictions. So they could author these contradictory tales and then act and know that they weren't contradictory even when those contradictions were stark, such as when they start talking about the injustices that many of the young girls experience, partly through the pursuit of justice um, and also partly through what actually happens. So rather than going into detail, you can begin to read some of this. This slide actually begins to talk about um, the criminalization of uh, sexually exploited young girls and women Um, And the criminalization as it links, if you like, to uh, their strategies of using crime as a resource to help exit from uh, from prostitution, from sexual exploitation. So if you look at um, that second quote there, when you unpick what it is they have done, the majority, then the majority, it's antisocial behavior. A lot of times it's set up by actual people who are exploiting them. They'll encourage them to shoplift. I mean, one girl wasn't very good. She used to get caught, and then she'd fight with the security guard and be done for assault. Right, Right, now, this was only the tip of the iceberg, and it was also clear from the interviews with practitioners particularly uh, that they knew that these girls were committing crimes because the perpetrators were encouraging them. And there was an obvious frustration. As practitioners knew that these girls were being arrested and prosecuted for crimes even though their exploitation should have been considered as a mitigating factor, if you like, or some contextual factor, or just taken into account somehow. However, some practitioners also recognize that such gaps in justice came down to the lack of professional awareness um, in services, and indeed sometimes came down to a lack of good multi-agency partnership working. Um, So we had another girl who not long back, who actually was missing from home for several days. She got to a stage where she wanted to exit the sexual exploitation. This is the famous frozen chicken story that's made its way around uh, various places. Uh, She wanted to exit the sexual exploitation, uh, so she walked. She was told as well that she had to cook dinner. Uh, So she walked into a supermarket and stole a frozen chicken and walked and walked openly up to the security guard intentionally to be caught, So sometimes crime is used as an exit strategy, or indeed, you could argue it a different way, crime is used as a safety strategy, as a safeguarding strategy, just to be a little bit more controversial. It is intentional. Um, And then a couple more quotes that demonstrate this. What the police don't understand, what the magistrate... These police, uh, when this practitioner was talking, uh, she was referring to police who don't have specialist training and knowledge. So what the police don't understand, what the magistrates don't understand, is that there is lots and lots, I would say, of self-hatred and self-loathing. So she's always attacking the men who exploit her. And often those men will be the first to pick up the phone and call the police. Really, I think she's attacking herself. It's the hatred of herself. And then another quote for you to digest. This one, I think, shows up uh, those organizational imperatives as they clash with each other across different organizations and that state of as-if knowing that exists within many of the practitioners. The majority of our young people use duty solicitors. They are hearing the duty solicitor say, just say no comment. I mean, young people, you know, she deliberately smashed his car. She... This was quite a long story. I've had to edit it down, so some of it jumps around. Uh, she came to us the night before, come to us, and she said, the other girls tell me I was raped. Uh, ten men had sex with me last night. Do you think that was raped? Makes a sound of explosion. Um, and she was sitting back, in the, she was sitting in the back, and she said, uh, he shouldn't have done that. And I said, well, you're absolutely right. Do you want to talk to anyone? Do you want to tell somebody about this? Do you want to, you know... No, it's all right because because I smashed his windscreen, Um, but he's going to get the police on me. They're often known as troublemakers. Uh, She's talking about the sexually exploited girls and young women. They're often known as troublemakers because they've built this picture and this antisocial behavior in the the community, hanging around in this community. Um, She's now mimicking other uh, professionals in the criminal justice agency. Uh, If they're such victims, why do they keep going back into the same community that they're at risk from? Why do you keep hanging around these men? These men aren't exploiting them. They're actually hanging around the cafeterias. They're hanging around the restaurants. They're banging at men's doors. Sarcasm. The work has already been done. They are indoctrinated, and this is where they believe. They're isolated from everyone that knows them and everyone that cares about them. And if, and if, and their whole world now is surrounded by this lifestyle. The thing that really drew... okay Um, So I'm now going to cut to the conclusion (laughs) in the remaining five minutes. Now it's clear from all of these stories um, that the practitioners and the police who I spoke to genuinely believe, strongly believe that their work is making a difference. Uh, And I'm not saying that it isn't, uh, but they strongly believe that. They also recognize the contradictions that confront them on a day-to-day basis. And what I've hoped to show is that this difference itself is based on, if you like, this notion that they are making a difference is based on this imaginary notion of safeguarding. Detailing practitioners' narratives, uh, I'm hoping to show that the interventions that are based on these imaginary safeguards compound, not protect, the girl's vulnerability. Um, And I've hoped to have shown that through the presentation so far now if the outcomes of these measures are if you like to use another metaphor slightly illusionary then what it is that safeguarding procedures then what is it that safeguarding procedures protect against? Both practitioners and the officers face impossible work impossible policing for they recognize the inherent contradictions that exist within their own day-to-day working environments And while they continue um, to express and and talk much about these contradictions, uh, the practitioners are all too aware... Do you know? I've lost my place. I do beg your pardon. ...are all too aware, uh, for example, contradictions will remain if the economic poverty of these girls is unaddressed. That's the other story that the practitioners talk about. These aren't just any girls. These girls are girls that are largely coming from economically deprived and marginalized communities. So they also recognized that the contradictions will remain if the economic poverty of these girls remains unaddressed. For they will continue to express agency, that is the girls, in the areas that are often denied to them, as they exchange sex for money, as they exchange sex for love and affection, as they exchange sex as a means to meet their their needs. With this in mind, contradictions will therefore remain in the monitoring and policing of these girls and young women as what is pushing and pulling them into these exchanges exists structurally. There is another altogether different issue um, when we start talking about grooming, and that's the external agent who's involved. uh, And thus, for these girls, um, a separation between child prostitution and exploitation sometimes is difficult to be made. Right, and I will end with uh, saying that removing these girls from their contexts may not be the solution. These safeguarding procedures um, and these safeguarding practices and the way that practitioners are forced to deal with sexual exploitation is a method best described as a scattergun approach to exploitation. It also says nothing about the cultural dimensions uh, that form the grip... that from the grips of perpetrators does nothing to stop him from finding other girls uh, through the method... Sorry. Do you know? Forgive me. Ignore that entire sentence. I'm now going to have to pick up this sheet of paper because the writing is very small. (laughs) And I thought I could manage, but I clearly can't. Okay. So... Let's get that final sentence right. As practitioners and police have suggested, removing a girl from the grips of a perpetrator does nothing to stop him from finding other girls, i.e. through the method of scattergunning to exploit. It also says nothing about the cultural dimensions um, that mean that that men are able to think that this sort of behavior is okay, or some men to think that this sort of behavior is okay. To this extent... The safeguards are imaginary or at least very specific in scope as their attention fails uh, to the individual girls um, and occasionally the individual partners and rarely gets to the heart of the matter which is the gendered structural relationships that drive the experiences of the girls and the anomic conditions that the workers work within. The end. This is a recording from the University of Leicester. For more information, please visit le.ac.uk.